if you say that you value, you know, staff, uh, then let's look at your retention policy. Let's look at how much you pay them. Do people have a living wage? Uh, do you actually provide PTO? Do you, um, you know, contribute, like what percentage of healthcare do you can contribute to? Because if you are not contributing anything and you say that wellness is something that your org values, then it doesn't actually, uh, because you're not providing anything for it. Hi, friends. Ever wondered how you could turn your big ideas into results? I'm Maria Rio, your go-to guide for helping small nonprofits have real-world impacts. Together, let's reimagine a better sector, tackle systemic issues, and yes, raise some serious cash. Welcome back to The Small Nonprofit, the podcast where your passion meets action. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Small Nonprofit Podcast. Today, I'm with Huang Murphy, so I'm really excited to introduce him to you. Uh, Hi, Huang. Hey. For our audience who may not know where you are, who you are, or what you do, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my name is Huang Murphy. Uh, I am currently the CEO of People Serving People, uh, which is a Minnesota homeless shelter, uh, and we are the state's largest family shelter. Okay, great. And how did you get into that? How long have you been a nonprofit? Why do you do it? Yeah, so uh, I previously had founded a nonprofit called Foster Advocates uh, about five years ago, uh, five and a half years ago, um, and really, you know, just saw that uh, nonprofits needed to operate differently, particularly one serving foster youth. And so I quit my job where I was working for a much larger nonprofit working in advocacy and founded that nonprofit. Um, after those, you know, five years as as a founder, just really saw the need to then step away so that it could have a legacy outside of me. Uh, but then also I felt the need to then be at a larger scale nonprofit to really show that uh, the things that we were doing as a small nonprofit were things that were scalable at a much bigger one. And in fact, I would argue that they're a lot easier. Well, what makes you say they're a lot easier? You just have a lot more resources. And I think that the moral demand um, to do some of those is much greater. If you have only one employee impacted on a team of seven, for example, the the pressure to do right by that one person is maybe not there. Uh, but mm-hmm. if you have 30 employees impacted by that same issue, then the scalability of that um, you know, allows you a chance to uh, address it. As long as it doesn't get so big that it just becomes a statistic. But until it reaches that huge scaling, I think larger nonprofits are better equipped due to their funding sources being more diversified generally. And also just then um, it's just easier to shift uh, things that uh, are our peer policy. That's a very interesting transition from small to big nonprofit. I've never worked at a super large nonprofit, so I've never experienced that kind of like relief, but I'm sure it comes with a bunch of other other challenges. Um, but I want to go back to you starting Foster Advocates and how you started creating a culture and protocols and systems for your organization. What did that process look like? Yeah, I mean, I would love to circle back on what you define as large, just because I think it's similar to how we just define wealth. It's, you know, someone's wealthy if they just make more money than you personally do. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in where the cutoff is for what is a large and what is a small nonprofit. And I feel like this is the best podcast in order to litigate some of that. But um, as far as policy, really, you know, for an org that started with just me, uh, at least for the first two years, it was <clears throat> creating policies that benefited me. They felt right to me and was like, and it made sense. Then 
then I just did it. As long as, you know, my board didn't need to be plugged into any particular decision that was related to it. Um, but as we then scaled, uh, I realized that a lot of the policies that just were simply my design may not work for someone else. And so what we did was we created a conversation um, that, you know, it was more of a partnership in that uh, third year. But then the following year, when we doubled our staff then to four, realized that we definitely needed to have a set policy. And I did it the same way I did it when I was creating policy for myself and when it was with one other person is we had a conversation first. Uh, it was then became really clear that that wasn't going to work. We also needed then to have a conversation about what our core values were as a team and how did those values uh, show up in our workplace and whether or not those were core values for the org. That really was that shift from my personal values to what were values of the organization. Once those were cemented, then we could have hard conversations uh, about then what did the integrity of the work demand and what policies then should be reflected in that and what our vested self-interest was in it and if it you know, uh, violated or was aligned with one of those core values. And did you find those conversations with staff or with board members in determining those core values difficult? Were there any butting heads and how did you deal with that? Yeah, I think any change without conflict is is not really probably a change um, just because I don't know, maybe it's because I'm used to a, a space where conflict is so avoided, uh, at least here in Minnesota, maybe that's true in Canada, but it's one that then it means that it wasn't significant enough. Um, but also, I think that sometimes then it's a railroading of a a policy. You're not then um, embracing discomfort that should be necessary. Uh, and so, I, I would deeply encourage folks to kind of lean into that conflict if there isn't any. Uh, but for us, it was super necessary. Uh, folks did disagree. Um, it's in the minutia that that disagreement exists. If you say, well, generally, we should make sure that everyone uh, has enough, uh, then what is enough? What is enough when someone uh, has children? What is enough when someone comes from family wealth? What, what does it mean um, when someone has foster identities? Uh, what is enough then, knowing that there are maybe um, you know, extra costs around uh, rece- receiving medical care? That might be more critical than that someone uh, receives, you know, mental health services if they're in a body that has lived experience in that work. Probably it might provide some key and deep insights to the work at, at hand, but then it also comes at a cost to their individual well-being as well. And how do then we compensate for that? How do we make sure that we are doing things that aren't seen as discriminatory, but also are meeting everyone's needs? That seems super hard. <laughs> Like, how do you compensate a person based on their holistic self and their holistic lived experience and other, like, how do you make sure it's enough per person without running into kind of like labor issues? Yeah, I mean, I think it's different for every single person and it's constrained by your very real budget needs. But I think it starts with having a really honest conversation. You put all the cards on the table. You say, this is what our budget is. This is how much we have to work with. And here's what we are thinking. Uh, and it is a policy then that has to work for everyone. That is the floor. The floor is that everybody's in. Uh, this is baseline and that we're not going to accommodate. So for example, um, or, or sorry, we're not going to accommodate for someone um, just because of one thing. Everyone gets it. It's a universal design principle. Uh, and that if a, you know, a fostered identity uh, worker, uh, coworker needs you know, every two weeks, they need an hour off to go seek mental health services, but then everyone gets that hour. 
Uh, it's just the baseline that everyone should be at. I think that makes it a lot easier for folks then to come on board. But the idea that we, you know, that someone who didn't have those entities wouldn't need that hour is also not true. Everyone used it, uh, for example. And so whether you use it for yoga, you use it to take a nap, or use it for mental health uh, services, I, I personally didn't care. As long as it was available then, then we were doing what we, what we could do. Um, you know, we can't make, uh, like you can lead a horse to water, uh, but then you also have to make sure that there is actually water there. I love that. So that must have been really helpful for the culture. Uh, or was that something Was that something that kept people around? Or did you see any attrition because people were having difficulty, having difficult conversations? What did that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think we had pretty low uh, attrition. Um, but also, I think that's the nature of maybe a really small team. Uh, but I don't know. I've never started a nonprofit before. And I, I almost am certain <laughs> will we'll not do it again. But I think that there are, um, you can pay greater attention to who you hire on such a small team, but also it's just so necessary that they're really stellar that we spent a lot of time vetting folks um, more so than maybe other places might, because we couldn't afford to miss any of our shots, you know, similar to, uh, you know, applying for like grants is that we didn't have the scale of a bigger nonprofit. If we're going to put in the effort, you know, the, eight to 10 hours it takes to get in a application then to justify that work, then it had to be one where we've had a lot of conversation with a program officer, a lot of engagement with them so that we know that this is much more likely to succeed than if we were to just, you know, approach, uh, you know, apply to a foundation that we don't have a previous relationship with, even if it would appear that we have a match. So for example, I never applied to a foundation in which I didn't meet with a program officer and were given a deep go ahead that we were a strong alignment because um, there's writing and then there's actual practice. And similar, I think, with, with hiring is that then people need to know what they're getting into. So you name those challenges. You name that, hey, there is risk here. We are really small. I have six months of burn just in case something really bad happens, but that's all I can guarantee you is that if um, you know stuff were to hit the, the fan, is this is how much room that I, I have. You don't assume certain things and you don't leave people with um, any misunderstandings because I think it's those hurt feelings and those unexpected uh, bumps that then cause people to lose faith. But if they know that they're, that they're possible and then when they do happen, it makes them a little bit less hard. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I always see leaders turn around and say like, oh, we can't share that information with our staff because then they would want to leave. And it feels like taking a little bit of consent and agency away from them. Because like, if we only have six months of runtime, people have every right to know that if it's going to significantly impact your life, or, you know, if it's a different problem, maybe it's better to have more hands on deck and more brains working on it than just two people. Yeah, I think any policy that is predicated on, you know, if your staff found out that they would quit, then you shouldn't have that policy. And it, it, I think it's just like, it goes back to the golden rule is that if I wouldn't want this done to me, I shouldn't do it to anyone else. And that's how moral injury, you know, infects us is that we start you know, moving away from that, is that we think that we have to be a defender of the rules instead of making sure that the rules uh, serve, serve us. And that is the thing that I try to pay most attention to is really just asking myself, if I was on the other end of this policy, would I be okay with it? And regardless of whether or not you think that's true, then go ask that person uh, to make sure that that is true. How did your uh, experience creating 
such a good, strong, transparent culture transfer to your new role? Did you have the opportunity to kind of like assess where the culture was at? Uh, was it mostly okay? What did that look like for you? I guess I would appreciate a, clar- a clarification. You, you mean like when I landed here at you know an org that is now 90 staff uh, versus an org that was like eight staff? Okay. That's so right. yeah, I, the first thing that I wanted to do was uh, get settled. But then one of the first efforts that we immediately made in you know the first 30 days was I started a listening sessions. And so we were meeting with anyone that wanted to meet with us, uh, but scheduling it, you could always opt out. Uh, but that you were going to be given space to have a conversation with me. Um, and the goals of that were really just to get background, um, help me understand my role, but then also then help me build a relationship and then also understand your role. And you try and you do it with everybody. Uh, and so what we made sure was that there was no one in any of the groups that was a manager that was in, you know, so if you were a manager, then you were in your own group. If you were associate or coordinator level, then you got to be grouped together. But anyone that managed someone else or that was in a critical, um, you know, a sensitive information issue area like HR or finance, then you had a separate conversation. But that allowed then for us to get a deeper idea about what the culture is right now. Um, because at least in the interview process and those things like that, you are getting an idea of what the, the idea of what the culture um, ideally is, or they would like it to be, or think it is. But that allowed me to get a really deep idea as wh- where are we at now, and then get a better roadmap of then the willingness of folks to get us to where we maybe need to go. And the idea that there isn't improvements to any culture to be made is a false one. I don't care how good the culture is, there's always something you can be doing better. It's a constant iterative process. Yes, for sure. It's It must be really interesting to transition from a smaller staff team where it's easier to kind of align your values and have these conversations to a huge team. 90 people is not a small team. So I wonder if you have any thoughts around like how to align 90 people worth of values into one streamlined vision. Well, ask me again in three months or so, and I'll let you know if it like worked out. But you know, one of the things that I quickly realized when I came here is that there was not set or values. Uh, there is not a core set of values that exist here. And so we are going to be going about uh, figuring out what that is. And I think that starts with teaching folks, uh, you know, in your senior leadership team, uh, how then we find out what those are, right? And it starts with core values, which core, core values are, right? The values that you're willing to hold on to um, and that you're, that you're willing to sacrifice other values to maintain these specific ones. And so I think it starts with an exercise with your senior leadership team. So I'm going to be modeling that with my uh, direct reports, then the rest of the senior leadership team. And then I'm going to be asking that they then do the same thing uh, moving down. And that is then how we're going to come to better alignment about what our core values are. Uh, I think part of that is people think that they don't have a buy-in to what the core values are if they're maybe uh, at entry-level position or they're newer, but that's deeply untrue. We all contribute to it. Um, and we then need to then decide if that is intentional because there are values that exist here. They're just not named and they're not uh, maybe ones that we would like there to be. But where that shows up is in our budget and in our work. And um, there's the values that uh, we could get maybe if other people uh you know, we, we ask other people to say what they, they are, but I find that less useful as the ones that we intentionally create now. And when you're saying they show up in your budget, 
what does that look like? How, what, like, how does that look like in operations? Yeah. So like, if you say that you value, you know, staff, uh, then let's look at your retention policy. Let's look at how much you pay them. Do people have a living wage? Uh, do you actually provide PTO? Do you, um, you know, contribute, like what percentage of healthcare do you can contribute to? Because if you are not contributing anything and you say that wellness is something that your org values, then it doesn't actually, uh, because you're not providing anything for it. And so if budgets are values documents, then that's where your values should be reflected. And if it's not reflected in them, then you need to really dig deep about whether or not that is a core value. How would an organization go about discovering their core values? So for example, my mission is to um, save all the cats in shelters, for example, right? And is that my value or is my value something else? Like how does an organization jump through that understanding? Yeah, I mean, I would say that that is a mission or a goal, right? That if you want to save all the cats in shelters, certainly uh, my cats, Ulang and Olive, would applaud that. But a value then is, uh, you know, a word or, um, you know, belief that then guides that. If you believe that um, that everyone should have agency, for example, then that, that can form, it's like that, uh, you know, the reason why you want to save all cats is because then they should have a say in what like happens to them. For example, um, if you say that you um, you know value uh, you know quality of life uh, for your cats, well then you should probably value it for your uh, your staff. And then you need to start asking yourself hard questions about whether or not um, then that is reflected in your policies and procedures. If those are two values of yours, are you willing to give up on something else? And so it often, at least the way that I have been taught. It, and I'm sure there's a multiple ways of doing it is, you know, you, you can find them online, but you just get a, you know, a big sheet of uh, values or, you know, words that, you know, might lend to, to that belief. And you just have people start crossing them out. What is least important? And the reason why you start with that, rather than just saying circle the five that are most important to you, is that you actually have to sacrifice them. Um, that's how you know it's a core value. Because I can say that freedom is most important. But then what I quickly realized is actually I value order a lot more. Because I personally feel like you can't, um, you know, that there's a tyranny to choice often. That we give people too many choices in ways that are not meaningful. And then it, you know, it dilutes the, the choices that are really critical and distracts from the really important ones. That if I give you, you know, 15 options for your healthcare plan, then it distracts you from the, from the reality, which is that uh, what if you said two and both were really, really good? Uh, and so I think that there's just different ways that we can um, start thinking about that and ways that our values inform it. But there is no magic solution. Uh, but I think you just really have to be courageous in leading in ways that just don't make you feel bad. Um, because I think that you should uh, think critically that if, um, if you don't feel great about this decision-making that you're about to go upon, then you really should explore why. And you maybe should pause until it's until it's at a place that you can morally stand behind it. I feel like that's such an easy way to look at like developing values. So thank you for sharing. Um, but just like, I believe X about our community and how they should be treated and how they, you know, should experience life better. Uh, and then seeing how that reflects internally is really great. Outside of the budget, how else can organizations check if their values are being integrated into their work. So whether that's programming, hiring, uh, recruitment, anything like that. You just, 
I think you ask people. Uh, you should maybe yeah, do surveys, but also you should do listening sessions. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of skip level meetings um, and like check-ins where, you know, you make it a regular process that you're checking in with all of the staff within a org, uh, but that you should, especially if you're new or you haven't done it in a long time, uh, I think it's really worthwhile to do a listening session with, you know, across the entire org. And then you should also do that with the clients that you serve as well, that if they're not giving you, um, you know, feedback in your regular process, then you need to go out and seek it in ways that are deeply meaningful and that they can actually engage in and then compensate them for the time that they gave you. And when you say like you need to go out there and seek it, are you talking to mostly executive directors, board members, senior leaders, all of the above? I think those things are important, but I would say that, you know, at least seeking out the feedback, uh, at least in how I references that in February, I plan on engaging in meeting with families. Now, families here in our shelter have a lot going on, right? They're in shelter. There's a lot of things that um, that they that would pull their attention away. And so what we would then like is to figure out ways that we can do meaningful focus groups, um, you know, provide adequate comp- compensation that's competitive for the hour that they're uh, giving me, and understanding that, that we value it. And so that comes then with a cost. And that is a cost that we're willing to then, you know, incur uh, to get this type of feedback. But I think it's important to talk to other EDs, to talk to uh, senior level folks, to kind of see what other folks are doing. But that shouldn't guide your values as much as what your um, clients are asking you to do and what your staff are personally asking you to, to do. Because if I go and ask all these other nonprofits if, you know, our PTO policy is good or not, then I'm going to the market. But the market is not moral. The market is not immoral, but it is amoral. And that's not a value of mine. Um, and so it's, it shouldn't be a value of the org. It's important to do comparison, uh, just to kind of see where you're at. But I think it's more important to look internally for yourself, but then look internally into your org. I've seen um, passports that I've worked with get their copy of their, you know, draft collective agreement and try to see someone else's, which totally erases all of the information that staff and your community are giving you. Like, it's not just uh, copy that policy and implement it here, but it's very much about creating something that's specific to your culture, to your organization, to your values. Uh, as we were saying, and just making sure that that lives throughout. When it comes to funders, you had mentioned a little bit about having these relationships before you even apply. Why were you doing that? Just because I feel like people are just really unable to take ownership of the power that they do have. Uh, and I feel like like that that that's the hardest thing to to get as I was becoming a ED is that I had to own the impact and the power that I had for my staff and for my, uh, you know, the, the fosters that we, we served. And I feel like foundations have not had, uh, at least not all foundations have had that same conversation, is that they need to own their impact as well, which is that you do hold a great deal of power and control. Now, not completely over someone um, the way that you would if they worked for you, but you do have it in the landscape. And because of that, often people then strive to be nice but then they're not being very kind uh, in that they're, you know, saying niceties to you about maybe how you fit in or how that works. But then they're not actually telling you like for real, like, Hey, if you apply, we just don't fund small nonprofits. Um, then they don't understand that the cost that is incurred is that I've just spent six hours, that time that I wasted. 
And also, I'm wasting your time. Why should I have you reading a application that you know you're not going to fund or that you know isn't going to get past your board? And so it's better to have that direct conversation. And so I would, early on, I would just ask people very directly, do we have a, you know, a degree of uh, likelihood to get funded that is that would make it worth it for us to apply? And if the answer is no, well then, awesome. That's great. I'm going to circle back once we do fit. Or I'm going to keep working on you and I'm going to keep having conversations with you until we are a great fit. But I'm not going to spend the time it would take then to apply until we are ripe, um, until it is a good match. Because I just can't afford that time and I can't afford the, you know, when it was just me, the morale hit it would take for me to get another no. And would you find in your conversations that the donors had already thought through some of this or was it kind of new to them? And you're explaining like, well, now I have to spend six hours on the justice application for you to say no. You know, I I think it really varied. I think for some of the foundations, they had really been practiced and really just were great. Like some of the program officers, even if it wasn't a uh, something that was named as part of the foundation practice, they, they just did that anyway. Uh, I think it's just one of the things that you kind of pick up or you learn or if you lead with your values, it's just a kind thing to do. But then there was others that, you know, they were really taken aback. But also, if you're shocked by that question, that is the answer too. It means that someone that is not thinking about these things and they're likely then not going to be a good fit um, if they refuse to answer them. At least they don't, you know, match your values. And then what is the likelihood of you getting the money pretty low? And what is the chance of you getting the money again, even if you got it this first time? And that's why I really, you know, it, it might be corny, but it really is about the relationship that that is much more worthwhile to invest in than this transactional, um, you know, interaction that we're maybe accustomed to, that we're going to say, you know, these wrote things and so will they, but it's much better to dig deeper and to figure out who they are as a person because no one actually wants to do things outside of their values. Uh, and so if you actually start pulling people back towards those values, conversations, then they're much more likely to do something aligned, or at least you're going to know much more clearly that they're not a good fit. So most of the times when there's a red flag, it's either really, really obvious or it's a little bit more insidious. Um, are there any green flags or red flags that you saw in your funder relationships that said, like, this is a good values aligned match? Yeah, I mean... I don't think you can get it always 100% right. And uh, I think that it's just really important to trust your gut. But I, I really don't think there are like too many hard best rules about that. Like I spoke with someone uh, when I was starting out and they're like, well, if a program officer doesn't offer to pay for your coffee, then they're going to be really cheap and they're not going to you know, help you out. And I was like, I strongly disagree with that. Sometimes they don't have a budget for it. Sometimes it's a cultural practice. Uh, it might be assumed rude that if they just like insist. Um, and so I never liked the awkward interaction about figuring it out. So I always just offered to pay. Um, and that was fine. Uh, but I think that one of, one of the green flags is just that when you ask that question and you just are really honest, right? Hey, I'm new to this work. I'm looking to get feedback from you on our application. If someone then has issue with that, they're not a good fit because they're not going to fund a newer person. That means that the doubt that they see or that the, you know, the help that you need is then not something that they're engaged in. You can then move on. You know, I had a great uh, 
uh, a colleague who shared, you know, this, this phrase, you should just bless and release people that say, that's fantastic. And now you're free to go on and do uh, things that are better fit for you. And so am I. That it doesn't, it's not worth arguing with someone about it. Um, it's not really worth, um, you know, engaging with someone about why they should, unless you build a deeper relationship. Now, there were some program officers that, you know, we didn't get funded from, and I sat down with them afterwards and was like, hey, I really need to dig in as to why. Because while I know that our budget and our outcomes are not dependent on funding from you, uh, that your decisions, you know, shouldn't have that much of an impact on us. The reality is that you're one of the few places that funds in this sector and funds in this issue area. What more can I do to make it a good fit? Or what what can I do to speak with your board or to shift your org so that you can better see our value? And while no one ever took me up on speaking to the board whenever I asked to, it created a sense of reflection and that either if that person pushed back, then I could tell that this was an org that was not open to ever having its mind changed and was pretty insular. But if they were open to it, even if it ultimately never led there, it then was a door opening to say, hey, let us think about this and let us get back to you. And that that told me a lot. How did this um, approach impact your fundraising from when you started to when you left? I guess I knew so little that I didn't know what I should be doing, which was actually maybe good. <laughs> uh, I just did what uh, felt like the right thing to do. Um, I also got a lot of advice on, um, you know, which foundations I should probably target, but no one sat with me in those early conversations. And so I just went ahead with them the way I would with anyone else is that I'm trying to get to know you. I'm trying to be deeply relational. Um, and it, it, paid off really, really well. We doubled our budget every single year. It's easy though when you're really small. We started with, you know, sixty thousand dollar budget, barely enough to pay for me in year one. You know, then we got to like one forty ish and I was like, hey, maybe we can hire someone. Um and then the following year we did um and doubled the budget again and then hired two more people. And um, you know, when I left we were a team of eight. Uh and I'd like to think that I left with uh, you know, a pretty strong budget um, that if anything went wrong, that we could float for a really long time if that was needed. But, you know, I think that I was just really trying to be thoughtful of the fact that if I was going to leave, I was going to leave in a position where things were really good and not the way that founders often leave, which is when there's a problem that they don't want to deal with, they become the problem, uh, or they've just stayed so long that they need to retire. And I wanted to be much more intentional than than that. And so I left a little a little earlier than um, maybe most folks would have. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that intentionality because as we know, like founder syndrome can be a very big thing. Um, so for you to do it in such a measured manner, I think it's really important for people to kind of understand like what steps you took and what that looked like for you. Yeah, I saw a lot of feedback. I just, throughout my work, I saw a lot of, especially male CEOs and EDs, get to a stage where the a lot of typically women around their their work or non, non-male folks then picked up a lot of their slack. And I just knew that I, that I didn't want that to be me, that I looked at that and saw a bit of grossness, that this was privilege in practice, right? And so because I didn't want that to be me, I then very intentionally tried to speak with folks and name that. Like, hey, I don't want this to be a problem. And so the more steps I make to resolving it, the, then the more likely I will receive a outcome that you know is more positive. So 
for example, um, shout out to Vu, who, um, you know, I think everyone is aware of his, his blog, but I reached out to Vu kind of just randomly. Um, and I expected him to fully just ignore my email, but he met up with me. Um, and I asked him, I was like, well, hey, I'm feeling a little crispy, like maybe not all the way burnt out, but I'm, I'm pretty close. And Vu said, hey, it may be paradoxical, but the more that you do to make it easier for you to leave, the easier it will be for you to stay. Uh, so that's what I started doing. What, what would it take for me to leave? It would take uh, making sure that all my staff are well compensated. It would take um, you know, increasing my own salary because I can't leave unless there's enough of a salary here to then replace me. And what I found was that, oh, it did get a lot easier for me to stay. That all these decisions that felt really selfish, that you know, were hard to justify in my mind because of the way that we often, you know, deal with imposter syndrome and the way that we, I, I, I guess I shouldn't say often. I, I assume everyone does, but maybe everyone doesn't. But that we engage in these practices that might feel that they're purely self-serving, but they ultimately are for the benefit of the org and. As we created those steps, I was able to stay longer. And at a certain point, I realized I reached all the steps necessary for me to actually go. And then the question became, well, now is now a good time? And I would like to think so, uh, but, time, but time will tell. Who, who became in charge of operations there then? Was there someone that you were training, like succession planning? It's always so hard with small nonprofits. So just wanted to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, shout out to Nikki Beasley. She's my upgrade there. And uh, she was someone who was on our board. And uh, before I get like an eye roll from folks who are like, oh, of course, they just picked someone off their, their, their uh, board. Um, it was because it was in a board meeting where I was like, hey, board, what is the biggest vulnerability to the org? And they were like, budget, you know, getting funders, if you did something terrible. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yes, yes. Um, but also, it's really just if I left, you know, or if, you know, uh, I think I said if, if I got hit by a bus and I couldn't do this work anymore. They're like, how about we just say if you just exited some, for like you won the lottery or something. Um, and I was like, yeah, so then how would you address it? And Everyone's like, well, we probably would not be able to um, or would probably put out a search immediately. It's like, well, then we need to then build those pathways. We need to figure out what the plan is for an interim staff member to step in. But then we also then need to start searching for someone who can potentially be in, in that uh, space, including just even if it just means having them in our network. But what we talked about with my staff and with other folks was that what type of leader did we need to have? And what we identified was that it had to be someone with lived experience. The reason for that was for credibility. Uh, credibility in community, credibility with our funders in the work, but also then credibility with staff. That this was someone that had to have skin in the game. And uh, so we went about searching for that person. And frankly, we were like, this is going to be impossible. When only you know like 3% of fosters graduate with a four-year degree, and not that that's necessary for this job, but um, it's probably someone that has that background or significant work experience as an as an ED or um, you know high level director. And we were, I was talking about and pontificating about how difficult it's going to be, and we'd probably have to look national, and then we'd have to you know figure out how to get someone here. That uh, a board member, Nikki, who had joined you know just like six months earlier, raised her hand. She's like, "Well, you know, I was in foster care, right?" And one, I did not know that. Uh, and, uh, secondly, 
she was like, well, I would be interested in that. And it really then started this conversation that uh, while I kept, you know, looking elsewhere, we were also then were having conversations about whether or not she might be a good fit. And so had her meet with all of our staff, um, had her, uh, you know, step off the, the board. And then we also did a three-month, tri- uh, you know, period where we overlapped. That knowing as a founder, there was lots of things that I probably just did that I didn't know that um, that I was even intentionally doing and that maybe didn't fit in our job de- description even, that then we were able to then overlap and then I was able to hand off the org after that. But that's one practice that I would highly encourage is that whenever you get to a salary negotiation or like a regular check-in period, I always had my staff redo their job descriptions uh, just so that one, then you keep the job description on hand and it's updated if they were to exit. But then also they then got to do a reflection of their job editing. So we know that people just do jobs as they come up, but then oftentimes it it can drift from what their job description originally was. And we should then, then reflect that because that also then should may, maybe be reflective of their compensation if they're doing extra work. And so that's that's the same practice that you know I did with Nikki is that then I we rewrote the job description to make sure that it then fit what the ED role was currently, not just simply what it started off when I founded it. I love that it was someone that was already involved with the organization. That's always so nice. And thanks for that kind of disclaimer with the board member part, because we do see just board members get tapped in who have no lived experience, who have no involvement in nonprofit, and it just can be a little bit of a disaster. So um, just going back to that comment about lived experience, I'd love to hear why that's so important in a leadership position. Yeah, I think it's really important because it, I mean, it's, it's similar to what I said earlier about having skin in the game, but at the end of the day, who's going to care about this issue outside of it being their job, right? That no matter what, I'm going to care about this outcome because I'm so personally invested in it that I have a vested self-interest in seeing this mission achieved. That often, I think in the life cycle of nonprofits, that you go from a founder who is trying to achieve mission. And then you go to an ED that's trying to keep the organization going. And that's become secondary to the mission. And it also hurts. I, I don't actually think it's an easier or better way to run an org if it's simply the goal is to keep it running. That if you're pursuing mission, then the, the running of the org will then follow. But it can't follow the other way. Uh, and so we then want to make sure and that the leader was someone that was going to have that proper focus that is not simply about the maintaining of this org. Because Foster advocates, frankly, could close, and I wouldn't mourn it if so long as it was no longer necessary when it did or that it was intentional in doing so. That if government operations then picked up to a pace where it was not needed, then I would actually celebrate its closure. But I don't think that's likely to happen anytime soon. It's still necessary in this landscape. And the person that's going to be a best assessor of that is community itself. And then so community needs somebody, the decision-making. And the way that that is often done uh, is then making sure then a member of that community is leading that work. It doesn't always have to be that case. But if you are someone who doesn't have lived experience and you're running an org, then how do you know that community decision-making is actually what's informing those choices? Uh, Is then you need to build decision-making processes so we had a you know lived experience board that rotated, and the two of those leaders always sat on my main governing board. That way, their voices were fully included 
uh, as well, just in case we ever got to a stage where, um, you know, we want to make sure that someone has all the skill sets needed, but they didn't have lived experience. I would still encourage hiring that person, but then you then have to build intentional pathways for feedback and make sure that community is informing daily practice and, um, you know, policies that folks are pursuing. And for foster advocates specifically, um, I think that that, lived experience value also carried over to board members and staff. Is that correct? Yeah. So the majority of our staff uh, had lived experience and I would say at least 50% of our board. There were times where, you know, we only had five board members and so therefore it, it tipped, you know, one way or the other. But I think that it's better to have folks that, you know, I really think it's better to follow the spirit of the law than the letter of it. Um, so that, you know, I, I had one foundation that I got into it with because they were, saying that you need to have 51% people of color on your board. It's like, I have exactly 50% because right now uh, I had, you know, someone step away because they uh, moved and I have three and three. Are you telling me I really can't apply? Even though I'm an ED of color, being a staff that is majority people of color and I serving major- almost entirely people of color, you're telling me I cannot apply to this org. That's insane. Did they let you apply but, in the end? <laughs> uh, yes, but it was more because... Um, we quickly added a board member. Uh, and so it it was less about forcing them to amend their policy. But that's where I think it's just really important to remember, we make the rules. We should not be in service to them. Yeah. I always appreciate having lived experience like as close as possible to leadership um, or, of course, as part of leadership, because I just feel like that's the way to know all the, the pros, the cons of all the situations and all the lessons that you learn. So. I appreciate that. Um, well, thank you so much for the discussion. It's so great to have you here. I'm just wondering for people who are listening to you and they want to get in touch with you, is there a way for them to connect with you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was going to say what my Twitter or X handle was, but I'm, I'm not on there really anymore. Uh, so I think the best way is probably through Facebook. You can find me on Long Murphy. I would love for people not to comment on maybe if I'm... Uh, Living on my values there, just you got to pick one and they're probably just the least evil. But um, if you really want to send me an email, you can send me at one at uh, hmurphy at org. But otherwise, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much again for being part of this conversation, for sharing all your insights with us. I feel like I learn every time I talk to you about little things to improve how you actually are as transparent as possible with your organization, how that operationalizes uh, itself into the organization once you're doing that well. Um, so thank you again. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning into this new episode of The Small Nonprofit. If you want to see our lovely faces again, we are on YouTube. So you can look at us there. But until next time, bye for now. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Small Nonprofit. If you want to continue the conversation, feel free to connect with our guests directly or find me on LinkedIn. Let's keep moving money to mission and prioritizing our well-being. Bye for now.